Welcome to Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. I'm your lead investigator on this case, Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Every episode is an investigation where you and I explore true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. We discuss the cases, share information, no chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. Now, grab your crime scene kit, a notebook, and your favorite hat. This is Best True Crime Podcast. The date is 2005. The place is Antioch, Tennessee. Your assignment is to analyze the case of serial killer Garland Millam and decide, is the sole sucker killer a result of nature or nurture? I got addicted to sucking the souls out of people that I was killing, Garland Milam told law enforcement in 2007, and I'm going to do it again if I don't get the death penalty. If you enjoy reading and watching shows about true crime, and even if you're only marginally interested, then you can name at least one infamous serial killer. John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and then there are dozens more that people find exciting and interesting. The subjects of books, movies, documentaries, pen pals, studies. And then there's Garland Millam. His 2007 mugshot shows a white male with dark eyes that stare past the camera and into somewhere you probably don't want to go. His hair is neat, military style, salt and pepper graying over ears and thinning a bit on the top. He wears a scruffy goatee. When his head is shaved, Four prominent tattoos, rectangle in shape, stand upright on the left side of his skull, and inside those rectangles are eyes. He says these are windows with eyes looking outside. There are dirty circles under his eyes, visible when his eyeglasses are removed, and he has that destitute air that the homeless who wander our streets and byways adopt when they are wandering. Let me tell you his story. Garland Ray Millam traveled cross-country as an adult, continually fighting an urge. Sometimes he took drugs, hoping it would stop these urges, or at least temporarily control the impulse. You see, Garland Millam had an urge to murder. Most of the time, he did fine in stopping the compulsion to take a life whenever it came upon him, flooding his senses like a strange addiction. But in July 2005, in Antioch, Tennessee, Garland lost control, and two men lost their lives, and Garland will be in prison forever. Garland Ray Millam was born April 24, 1965. He would later remember his mother as a biker, a Cherokee Indian who worked as a topless dancer. He reports she was an alcoholic who introduced her little boy to crystal meth. He would be removed by state social services from his mother's home at the age of 10. The boy went to go live with his aunt. The aunt called him, quote, an uncontrollable child. A childhood photo shows a cute little boy with short blonde hair and a straight smile. A photo of him as a young man shows a handsome, slender fellow, a little bit of a square build, with reddish hair, cut military style, and a tight smile on his face. 
As an adult, he would be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, and he blamed it on abuse suffered at his mother and his aunt's hands. Garland would admit he was an angry child, and he says, I was taking a lot of the rage and anger that I had out on small animals. He killed puppies by smothering them and kittens by snapping the necks. When he was a teenager, Garland traveled, living here and there, until dropping anchor once in Cisco, Texas. He worked at a truck stop diner and lived on a goat farm. When I kept myself busy, I didn't have the urge to kill, he would later explain. But when he was laid off from his job, I kind of went into a little of a rage. There were some baby goats that had just been born. I killed them with a garbage bag, tied it over their heads, and tied a knot in it so they couldn't get it off. He would later tell authorities, the wandering, the traveling, the hitchhiking, as long as I was constantly moving, it seemed like I evaded the desire to kill. He lived in Arizona, Colorado, Texas, Utah, and Louisiana. When the urge would bubble to the surface, he turned to marijuana and crack cocaine to curb the desire. And it worked. For a while. So he claimed. In 1995, Garland's brother Tommy found Garland a job in Florida. So Garland headed down to the Sunshine State. He began smoking more crack, even trading his bike for a crack rock. And he did time in jail. But Garland didn't stick around Florida for too long. He would say later he began having impulses to kill Tommy. So he ran, hitting the road again. Garland did leave a note. The desire to kill, he would say later, was an internal beast. Smoking more crack to keep the thoughts numb stopped working altogether. Garland Millam ended up in Nashville, Tennessee on his way to Mexico from Maine. And then he ended up in Antioch. It would prove fatal for two men, and it would land Garland in prison for life. Antioch, with a population of a little over 86,000, is located southeast, about 12 miles outside of Nashville. Depending on who you speak to, it's either turning into a rough spot to live, or it's an established neighborhood with patches of spots where rap music blares at night, and you are very careful who you lock eyes with. Golden Millen set up a camp spot near other homeless men in an embankment about 300 yards behind a strip mall on Belforge Lane. But Garland was not a typical homeless, hopeless, drug-addled man who lived from drink to needle to needle to drink or just live on scraps. Police would even later express surprise at how clean his camp was and how clean Garland kept himself. Garland would make friends at this camp, including two men named Tim McCoy and Johnny Paul Davis, both 48 years old. Tim and Johnny both set up camp in the woods behind this strip mall. They lived like that, this tribe of folks living on society's fringe. Then came the day when Millen would earn the moniker Soul Sucker from the Nashville media. One story has Garland Millen asking Tim McCoy to chip in money with him to purchase alcohol. McCoy agreed to add the few dollars he possessed. Then he made the decision he was not going to put in his money. Another version came from Garland himself. He said, I told him I caught evidence of him being in bed with my woman. I went out, got drunk, 
and got mad. So I came and kicked her out at knife point. Garland explains, Then I went up to the guy's tent, kicked him in the head, and said, It's time to die. Either way, an argument ensued, and Garland could not stop the urge this time. He murdered Tim McCoy by dropping a money belt around the man's neck and pulled it tight. So there was Garland, standing over a dead body, the urge to kill dissipating, and in his mind, his friend's body lay dead while his soul lived in Garland's body. But Garland had evidence to hide. He pulled Tim into a tent, ensuring no one was in the area, struck a cigarette lighter, and tossed it. Garland set it up so it would appear to be an accident. On August 13, 2005, the day after he murdered Tim, one story surfaced of how Garland was sitting in his camp with a very drunk Johnny Paul Davis. Garland began to share the details of murdering Tim with Johnny. Johnny listened, and then he asked him incredulously, Why did you tell me this? Garland replied, Well, because now I have to kill you. I'm going to give you a five-minute head start to get out of my camp before I kill you. Johnny tried to run, but under the influence of so much booze, he couldn't move very fast, much less run. He scrambled about, and Garland Millen would later calmly tell investigators about Johnny's last moments on earth. Garland strangled Johnny with a dog's leash as he told the man, I'm doing this to put you out of your misery. He tried, but he didn't manage to suck the soul of Johnny Paul Davis. He said, I think I missed it. Catching and arresting Garland Ray Millam was one of the easiest arrests in Nashville, Tennessee area. After the murder of Johnny Paul Davis, Garland just simply walked to a nearby grocery store. He told a store employee he was turning himself in for murder to please call the police. When police arrived, Garland walked them over to the crime scene where Johnny's body was located. Then, Garland walked police to another scene where trash and clothing lay about in disarray, surrounding a soot-blackened area where once was a tent. A short-legged red and black outdoor gas grill sat on the ground. It was once the home of Tim McCoy. I was with Tim the night before, and when I got here that morning, I come up and the fire was still smoldering. Once in custody, Garland would later confess to killing a Tucson, Arizona man with a machete. He dismembered the body and then tossed it on railroad tracks. He also admitted to beating a Topeka, Kansas man to death with a ball bat. And he would admit, then, to the murder of Tim McCoy. By January 25, 2007, Garland Ray Millam had grown out his beard and it was a gray and white puff growing from sideburns and mustache past his chin. He still wore his hair short. And he appeared like this in court to plead guilty to the murders of Tim McCoy and Johnny Paul Davis. A friend of Tim's was in the courtroom. Garland was asked if he wanted to say anything to her. Yes. Garland would explain, as he was being slowly strangled to death, Tim McCoy kicked Garland. A good one. Almost broke my leg. Garland chuckled over that memory, and then he reported. He was strangled so hard his eyeballs exploded out of his head. He quit moving, and his soul rolled the last breath out of his body, and I inhaled it.
He looked at Tim's friend, and he said, Don't worry about Tim's soul, because I have it. Garland Ray Millam equates killing with getting high on crystal meth, but killing was better than meth. He reports there's a tingling all over the body while committing murder, a rush that makes him lose control, including his bowels. He says, but I didn't like it. I didn't like a messy killing. I know that I will kill again, Garland told courtroom officials. I want the death penalty, he told a night court commissioner. I know that I'm a monster. Instead, he received two 51-year sentences to run consecutively. Garland Ray Millam is incarcerated in the Tennessee Department of Corrections today. He has never expressed remorse about his crimes. When he shaves his head, that tattoo of three vertical bars can be seen on the side of his skulls, representing the windows. It was a joke, he said. There are eyes in the back of his head and eyes all around. Those eyes still peer out of the windows. His hairline has receded, and he still wears those eyeglasses and a scruffy goatee. To spend the rest of his life in prison doesn't bother me, Garland has said. After years on the road, maybe I'll learn a trade. Keep my mind busy by reading books. Do some leather work. Was Garland Ray Millam a product from his past? His older sister would ask, Garland is not the only person with a troubled upbringing. Where does the violence stem from? Part hereditary? Part childhood experiences? She would add, We all have a monster inside of us. Does he blame his bloodlust on his past as an excuse? The aunt who tried to raise him would say, Now it just seems like he's trying to blame everything on everybody but himself. When I initially wrote about this case several years ago, I received an anonymous note from a distant relative of Garland saying Garland was mentally ill and years of unchecked, maturing mental issues created the man who now sits in the Trousdale Turner Correctional Center in Hartsville, Tennessee. It's the age-old argument of nature versus nurture, the debate over criminal theory as to what makes a person kill in such a brutal manner and appear so nonchalant about the action. Perhaps the combination of a horrific childhood coupled with the rough life and the survival skills you need to live on the road for so long, augmented by mental health concerns or even learning disorders? Can a human being be a monster? Can a human being be born a monster? Or are monsters made? Whatever the diagnosis, Garland Ray Millam might know something about himself that we are all missing when he said, I know that I'm a monster. This has been Season 1, Podcast 17, Serial Killer Garland Millam, Addicted to Sicking Souls Out of People. The date was 2005. The place was Antioch, Tennessee. Your assignment was to analyze the case of serial killer Garland Millam, and have you decided, is the soul-sucker killer a result of nature or nurture? Hey everybody, I'm Judith A. Yates, true crime author, criminologist, and I support PFLAG. That's parents, families, and friends of LGBTQ, also known as PFLAG. 
The PFLAG Chapter Network provides confidential peer support, education, and advocacy to LGBTQ and people, their parents, and families, and allies. PFLAG Chapters are in communities in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. PFLAG has been saving lives, strengthening families, and changing laws since its founding in 1973. PFLAG is the first and largest organization dedicated to supporting, educating, and advocating for LGBTQ and their families. PFLAG works to create a caring, just, and affirming world for LGBTQ and those who love them. You can learn more about PFLAG at www.pflag.org. Thank you for joining me on this investigation, exploring true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. This is Best True Crime Podcast. No chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. I do hope you will subscribe. This podcast runs off donations only. You can drop us a donation, $35 or more, and I'll send you a signed book. Just go to www.besttruecrime.com. My name is Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Thank you for joining me on Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. Be safe out there.